Before we get into the sermon uh, this morning, which will be in Mark chapter 6, verses 45 to 52, um, I'm going to take an opportunity now to not only thank someone, but to, um, I think one good turn deserves another. We have somebody that has a birthday coming up tomorrow, and she did this to me without telling me back on my birthday, and so I am going to return the favor and do this back to her, so Diane has a birthday tomorrow. So... Sing loud so you don't hear me, but let's. Happy birthday. Happy birthday. Diane. Happy birthday to you. Would you wish her a happy birthday? I am an elephant. I am an elephant. No, seriously, it's uh, boy. How do how do you turn how do you turn uh, singing a birthday into uh, something vindictive? I'll get you. Yeah, no, we don't want it. To, that wasn't it at all. No, really, happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, and we are so grateful for you. And we're grateful that we can get into God's Word. Our aim is to connect all people to the truth and hope in Jesus. And this is one of the key ways that we do this, is opening up the truth of God's Word so you can see the hope of Jesus for, for all time and for you even now. So I hope that you'll take your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 6, verses 45 to 52. Let's stand as we honor His Word together. <laughs> this is the Word of the Lord. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea and was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully in the wind, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea and he meant to pass them by. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And they got into the, and he got into the boat and the wind ceased and they were utterly astounded for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. You may be seated. I just want to say this too, we, we have you um, and we call you to open up your Bibles and I don't want to ever take it for granted. If, if, there's a, if there's some of you that you may have an app on your, Bible, on, on your phone that has a Bible app on it, um, sometimes that can be distracting with all the other notifications that can pop up. Uh, if you need a physical copy, please let us know. And in fact, that pew Bible that's in front of you, if you need a physical copy, you can just take that one in front of you because we want everybody to be able to have a copy of the truth of, of the scriptures. But when we look at this passage, um, the title of the sermon this morning is not only reflective of the passage, but it's really a question that God is asking all of us. What will it take to soften your hearts? These um, election ads that seem to come around and everything that we're seeing on the news and, and even things that may be happening in our own life may tend to harden our hearts to such that we may miss what God is telling us. 
And you may be going through some things right now, and you may think God has sold you a bill of goods because you may think that things were supposed to have gone smoother. The fact is, is that we live in a broken world, and there's so many things that will happen, but we know that there is one who is going to make all things right. And he's going to make all things as, as it should be. But this is not how it is. But I, I just know that sometimes, in fact, many times, most of the time, well, let's just say all the time, God puts us in a position to where he is exposing what is our, what's in our hearts and what's in our attitudes. He's always doing that. Nothing is random and nothing is arbitrary. He is putting us in that position to show not only who he is and his glory, but I also believe he is showing us who we are. And there's some things that come up. And you can guess, I've given, I'm going to list off about five things. You can guess which ones affected me over the last couple of weeks. Maybe it's fodder for conversation later. When that person doesn't obey traffic laws or your own personal traffic laws. That's one for me, I'll be honest with you. Because whenever I go and pick up my boys at school, um, you have to get in line and there's rules and some people don't follow those rules. I was telling David the other day, it's like the very last verse in the book of Judges that there was no king in the land and everybody did what was right in their own eyes. It was, oh, oh, well, that was mine. Um, when the family wants to watch a program you have no interest in, how do you react? When, when the elections don't go the way you want and you still may not feel like they are, went the way you wanted. Um, when your neighbors behave in a certain way or when the preacher preaches on something that may offend you. So God brings these things to our minds and to, and, and to our front doorstep to just expose what's already in our hearts. Last week we looked at, at Jesus and the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 and Jesus spent a lot of time showing them how much, uh, showing them much rather about his ministry and about who he is. And one thing we didn't talk about last week was how frustrated the disciples were. Because the disciples, Jesus had said, come over here and rest. And I'm sure the disciples were like, finally, yes. And then people started showing up, no, no, I wanted the rest. Jesus, can we have a little more rest, please? I could just see that. I could see that frustration going on. And then, you know, they're, they're hanging around so much and they, they, they know they have to get them home in order for them to be able to get something to eat. And Jesus, the disciples are saying to Jesus, Jesus, you need to do something. And Jesus basically saying, well, why don't you do something? And there is over and over, Jesus is putting, putting the disciples in these positions. And it's like a lab. If you remember from college, you would have a class. That would teach you about all the principles, but then you would have a lab to where all of those principles were being worked out. That's what Jesus is doing for all of us. This is where we are learning in the classroom about what's going on. And, there, and hopefully we have our own little classrooms every day where we're in the word. But then he said, okay, I need you to put feet to this. I need you to take it out of the garage and put it out on the highway. And sometimes we don't do that. And we need to start doing this because over and over, Jesus is putting us in these positions. As a rabbi, he was teaching his disciples all along. But what Jesus now is trying to teach his disciples is what his glory is all about. Jesus is trying to show his disciples, and he's trying to show us who he really is and to not take him for granted. And so we're going to break this in half. And look, let's look at verses 45 to 48 
and, and see some lessons here that God is showing us about what it takes to, har- to soften our hearts and to re- be removed from those hardened hearts. In verse 45, it talks about immediately that he made his disciples get into the, into the boat and go before him to the other side. So in order for your hearts to be softened, one of the things you have to realize is that God, yes, which we've talked about a lot already, but let me drive it home one more time. Let's hit the, hit the, uh, the, the hammer and the head of the nail. Let's get it. And we, he is putting you in a position to where you see his glory. That's how your heart will be softened. Because if you don't know that, then what's going to happen is you're going to get resentful. Well, why am I here? Where's God? What's he doing? And your heart gets hardened. Why are things the way they are? They should be this way. Well, then your heart gets hardened. But if you realize that God is putting things in a position for his glory, then all of a sudden you'll be like, okay, God must be up to something. I don't get it. I don't see it. I don't understand it. I got questions. But I know he's doing something. And that will help soften your heart to be able to deal with what's coming next. It says that he, he made them get into the boat. He made them get into the boat. He stayed behind, and he ended up dismissing the crowd. And then ultimately, he ended up getting to a place where he was going to be alone and pray. That's another way that your heart can be softened, rather. Prayer. Getting alone with God in prayer. Verse 46, it talks about that after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. I cannot remember from reading Mark or even the other Gospels up until this point, the last time that Jesus was all by himself. But here he is. And what does he do when he's by himself? He makes sure that he takes time to get alone to pray. Now, for us, we have a hard time with prayer because we have so many resources at our disposal on how to do whatever. We have all the modern conveniences, so we really, most of us don't have to worry about wanting for anything. Some, some of us do, but for the most part, in comparison, especially with the rest of the world, our standard of living is, is much, much higher. For even those that may be in the lower middle class are still considered rich by the, the average standard of the rest of the world. And so we have all the modern conveniences. We have all the resources. How does that affect us as a church? Well, I mean... We, we, we know how to put a sermon together. I have enough commentaries and I have enough resources to where I can put a sermon together and not have to pray at all. The music team, when I was a worship leader, I mean, I could, put, I could pick songs. There was, when, when we used these things called hymnals, in, in the back of the hymnals, um, there, there were these things where, okay, what's the preacher preaching on? Okay, so I can go back and find something on the topics and find two or three songs and, you know, have to have two of them where they're not going to want to run me out of town. There can be one, but you got to make sure that there's a couple of songs that they know, and if you bring in a new one, that's something that they, you, you see what I mean? You have all of these different things where you know how to put together a service, you know how to put together a sermon, you know what to play, you know what to sing and all of that, and you can do all of that and not pray. And you might actually have people like it. Boy, that was wonderful. You sang a song, I know. Oh, wonderful. Doesn't mean the power of God is attending there. It just means that your ear that your tickled ear was being scratched. Do you see what's happening? So what we end up doing is we end up coming along, and it's no wonder, like Spurgeon, you're probably sick of me talking about Spurgeon. You just got to get over it. Get it in your spirit. He's going to say something about him. But Spurgeon, 
even though his church had thousands and thousands of people and it was the largest church in the world at that time and the largest city in the world, he would say that the engine room for the church was prayer. He would have people praying before the service so the power of God would attend the service. He would have people praying during the service. We, well, how often do we put prayer into what we're doing? And if the Son of God, who had all things at his disposal, prayed, took time to be alone with God, what does that say for us? It is an absolute model. Well, one of the other things that we see, too, is that Jesus knows where we're at. He knows exactly where we are. So if you look at verse 46, he says he had taken leave of them and he went up on the mountain to pray. Verse 47, and when evening came, the boat was out on the sea and he was alone on the land and he saw that they were making headway painfully for the wind was against them. This wasn't the first time they had been out of the boat and the wind and the waves came and knocked them around. These nor'easters that would come in. And the way the, the, the way the Sea of Galilee was, it would almost turn into this churning and turning while they're out over on the sea. And this was nothing new. But he knows exactly where we are. Now, granted, he put them in that position. But he also knows where they are. Like in, in Genesis 3, you may remember when uh, after Adam and Eve did that deed of eating the fruit of the tree, God comes into the garden and he says, Adam, what's the question? Where are you? Okay, was, was God having a bad day, having a senior moment to where he may have been not, oh, I don't, where'd he go? No, he was, this is what he, and I use that term because I've heard you all use it. I've heard you all say that, and, and, it, but the, and so you get it. God wasn't, God, God didn't forget. He was wondering if Adam knew where he was, right? We've been over that before. God knew not only where they were geographically, he knew where they were mentally, emotionally, spiritually. He knew where they were. And they're probably there. I know they're out on the boat because this is how I'd be. He's feeding all of those people that aren't even following him. And he's putting us out in this boat. We're going to die. Do you see how we can be? We can look at this particular thing and think that that's how God's going to do in this particular thing. But God had a mission for here and God had a mission for here. And he has a different mission for you in your life. He may have acted one way in, in one area of your life to bring him glory and to show you stuff. And he may act in another way in your life to, to bring him glory and to show you stuff. So God knows what the disciples are thinking. Christ knows what they're thinking. He knows what you're going through. You may think he doesn't because he's not acting in a certain way. He knows exactly what you're going through. Pardon me. And he said they were making headway. What was the word he used in there? Painfully. You feel it? You feel what they were dealing with? I don't like getting out on the water, but I can feel that. And yet here he is. And it says it was about the fourth watch of the night, which is about 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. So it's in the, it's dark, dead of night, and it's here. Do you remember last week when I, told, when I told you that whenever I approach a passage of Scripture, I approach it, one, like I've never read it before, and two, knowing that maybe some of you have never come across this before? So I did that with this passage. 
And there was a piece of it that I could, I could under, if you didn't already know what the backstory is, it would just sound so absurd that Jesus would do this. Because it says, this little phrase at the end of verse 48, he meant to pass them by. Okay, so you're saying, Pastor Matt, that we have a Savior here in heaven, a Savior here working, and a Savior in heaven, that is feeding 5,000 men, 20,000 people out of a lunch, basically creating something out of nothing. You're telling me that he's now put his own followers out on the sea in danger. He has the opportunity and the ability to calm the sea and to get them out of this mess. But no, he takes his godhood. He is, he is Lord and sovereign over all natural properties. He gets out on the water. He walks on the water. And instead of going to the boat, he's going to pass them by. See you guys. I'll catch you over there. Okay, so you read this and you can, okay, so you can understand why there may be some people when they would read this, they'd be like skeptical because they're like, well, the only reason he came over there is because they were crying out and he felt sorry for them. No, no, no. Pump the brakes. Hang on. Because he is going to show you something and he is going to show the disciples something about who he is. And it's connected to what he did with the loaves. So, two passages, there, there's, there's something in the, in the Old Testament that we end up, um, theologians call, use the word a theophany, which is, means an appearance of God, or appearance of Christ. There's been times when we see from the New Testament that Christ did appear in places in the Old Testament. But there's a couple of places where that played very prominently in the Jewish mind, and it hopefully will play prominently with you since it's in our Bible. And one is in Exodus 33, verses 18 to 23. You can trust me in reading it, or you can turn there. But there is a, a place where Moses, in the midst of him trying to deal with all of these stiff-necked and obstinate people, was trying to get some sort of understanding. Lord, who are you? What's going on? And he finally says in verse 18 of Exodus 33, Moses says, please show me your glory. And this is how the Lord responded. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you. I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. Oh, by the way, whenever we sing some certain songs, show me your glory, Lord. If he were to do that, we would all be wiped out. We'd be on the news. What happened? Well, God's glory showed up. Oh. <laughs> Got to be careful. Okay. Verse 21. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, you see the? The phraseology there, I will put you in the cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. So that's one theophany, glory of the Lord passing by. The other one is found in 1 Kings 19, which is, is, is an interesting passage because what's talking about in 1 Kings 18 was Elijah is having this showdown 
with the prophets of Baal and the prophets of Asherah, about 850 in total. And what they did was the showdown was a contest. And basically it was this, you pray to your God, we'll put a sacrifice here, build an altar, put a sacrifice here, you pray to your God, and then I'll pray to my God and we see which one is God. And so all morning and a lot of the afternoon, these prophets were crying out, and they were crying out, Baal, hear us, Baal. They started cutting themselves to show they were serious. And the blood offering, okay, this will get his attention. Elijah's over there. Well, maybe he's on vacation. Maybe he's relieving himself. You're saying, you're, no, he didn't say that. He said that. It's in the Bible. Maybe he's relieving himself. Maybe he's doing this. You know, call louder. And he's just egging them on. And nothing. Mo, or Elijah comes over. Waters the altar once and waters the altar twice, waters the altar three times, puts a sacrifice there, says a quick little prayer, shoom! Now after that happened, you would think that Elijah would be like, we can conquer anything, me and God. But Elijah went into a bit of of a valley, he went into a depression, because he felt like he was all by himself. And God showed him later that there was a remnant in the land, in the hills, that hadn't bowed the knee, 7,000 in total. And so he's standing there, and in 1 Kings 19, verses 9 to 12, it says this, There he, Elijah, came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, you want to guess what it says? I know you're reading it, but I'll tell you anyway. The Lord passed by. And a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the, wind, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. Now, so what does that have to do with anything? You may be thinking, because it's been a long time since we were in Mark, you may be thinking, thank you for letting me know about Exodus and 1 Kings. Great. What does that have to do with anything? When Jesus is passing by, You've got to remember that these were not 21st century Westerners. These were people who had been hearing about these theophanies in synagogue week after week after week after week after week. And so there's these associations about the glory of the Lord passing by. And so when Jesus is passing by, there's that association. That's the second person of the Trinity. That's not just the Son of God. That's God the Son. And there is this understanding when he's talking about that they didn't, they were all terrified, they were worried, they were, they thought it was a ghost, they thought it was this, they thought it was that. And at the very end, remember it says in verse 52, for they did not understand about the loaves. God creates out of nothing. God is over all of the properties of, na- of nature. God is the one whose glory is there passing him by. And, and when you, when you remember like from John chapter one, verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now dwelt tabernacle. Now the tabernacle and then later on the temple was the place where the glory of God was housed. Okay. Among the people, among God's people, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his what glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the father. 
full of grace and truth. Jesus is that temple that is housing the glory of God. Jesus is the one that brought the glory of God to earth. Not reflecting it, radiating it, as it says in Hebrews 1. He's the source of the glory of God as the second person of the Trinity, of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So as we get to the last half of this, and we've already talked a little bit about it, it said when they saw him walking on the sea. Now again, they're in the middle of a storm. They're not thinking about the Bible. Just like if you're in the middle of your boss over there yelling at you at work, or you're trying to get your car out of the mud or something like that, you're probably not thinking about your Sunday sermon. Probably not. That'd be cool if you were, but you're probably not. But it was things that they were going to look back on and make the connections. The Holy Spirit was going to be there to help them do so. But in the meantime, when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. Well, let's camp out here for a little bit. Is Jesus merely identifying himself? Now, you're probably getting the gist and the rhythm of how we're doing this sermon this morning. He's not merely doing that. There's actually something a little deeper that he's communicating. That little phrase in there, it is I. So, I don't, I don't like to bring up Greek too terribly much because I didn't like it being brought up to me when I was in seminary. And I'm not going to subject that to you. But there's a couple of things that you need to know about this. Is that when you look at a word, especially a verb in the Greek, the... The, the tense of it, but also the possession of it is in the word. For us, like I would say, I preach. Well, the Greek word is, you don't have to have that extra I in there, ego in there. It would be caruso. It's implied in the word. But when you read the Greek and that pronoun is pulled out, that's emphasis. You see? So what he's saying here is there is an emphasis here. It is I. You know how it can also be translated? I am. Ooh, that's significant. Why is that significant? Well, again, we're going to go back to the Old Testament in Exodus. When Moses was a fugitive of law in Egypt because in order to protect a fellow Hebrew, he killed he killed an Egyptian, hit him in the sand, thought, he, thought nobody saw it. Somebody brought it up the next day. It's a reminder. Somebody's always watching. And so he goes out to Midian, he's there for 40 years, you know, kind of waiting everything out, but he made himself alive for 40 years. Well, he's up on Mount Sinai, and all of a sudden he sees this bush that's burning, but it's not consuming. Well, that's interesting. So he goes up, the bush begins to talk to him. Uh, Moses, you are on holy ground. Please take off your sandals. And he begins to explain that he has heard the cry of his people. He has seen their affliction and he aims to deliver them. And Moses is like, well, that's lovely. And then God drops it on him and I want you to be the instrument of deliverance. Well, that's not lovely. I have questions. One, who am I? Well, you're my servant. I'll be with you. Who are you? Well, then... It says here, verse 13 and 14, that Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you and they shall ask me, what is the name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. 
He said, say to the people of Israel, I am has sent you, sent me to you. Okay, so what's the significance of there? That word I am can also be translated. I think if you have the NIV, it may say I will be who I will be. That's the same sense. There is an eternality a holiness, a beauty, a glory, a majesty behind that name. And so when Jesus is going along in the, the book of John, and he's saying, I'm the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the, the, the way, the truth, and the life. I am this. I am that. And even when, it was talk, when he was talking to the Pharisees, and he said before Abraham was, I am, John eight fifty eight, And the the Pharisees, they, they, they lost their minds. He said he was saying he was God. A word here. Because every so often people who do a very, like a cursory read of the New Testament, they, well, Jesus never said that he was God. Well, you're not reading it. Because he's not gonna, he, didn't, he did not come out and say, I'm God. But what he did was he gave all of these clues And he demonstrated by his actions that he most certainly was not just the Son of God, but God the Son. He most certainly said that. So he's basically getting into the boat. Take heart. I am. Don't be afraid. They knew what he was saying. And that was terrifying to them. Remember what I said the first time of of the stilling of the waters? What's more terrifying, the storm outside of your boat or holy God in your boat? I'll give you the answer to that. It is much more terrifying to be in the presence of the living God because the living God is a consuming fire. It says it over and over again. Remember when John saw Jesus in in Revelation 1? What happened when he saw that one that he followed for three years on earth when he saw Jesus in his resurrected state? It says he fell over as though dead. This is your Savior. Now, we know how the disciples reacted, and we know how the Pharisees reacted, and we know how the other people reacted, and that's all well and good. The question is, how are you react? Have you hardened your heart to the things of God, only using God for what you want, and then that's it? Have you hardened your hearts to what his word is saying, only going to the places that belong on that Hobby Lobby pillow? and may avoid those other things that may offend you and and give you trouble, well, that's the same God that is in that burning bush. That was the same God that parted the sea. That's the same God that raised Jesus from the dead. And that's the same God that's going to come back and make all things right. All things right. I'm pressing on the upward way. New heights I'm gaining every day. <clears throat> What's the next line? Still praying as I onward bound, Lord, plant my feet on higher ground. Lord, lift me up and let me stand by faith on heaven's table land. A higher plane, I, no higher plane have I found. Lord, plant my feet on higher ground. He is putting you in a position to so you see his glory and your heart will be softened, not only to him, but actually to the people that are around you. We're losing a lot in our culture that we valued 
Veterans Day brings up all of those things that we value. Democracy, rule of law, all of those things that are being very much threatened, I would say, by both sides of the aisle. He's talking politics. Don't get used to it. But there is one on whom is our solid rock. It's not that next guy that's going into the office. It is not, that, it is not anything that this world has to offer. Our citizenship, everybody, is in heaven. And the Savior that we have is not just a really wonderful, inspirational teacher that went around doing little TED Talks all over the place to, to inspire people and make them to feel better. This is King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and He wants to bring you truth. Yes, He came with compassion, but not at the expense of truth. And yes, He came with truth, but not at the expense of His compassion. Some of you are on one side or the other. Jesus wasn't. So what is it going to take to soften your heart? What more does he have to do for you and through you to soften your heart, not only, again, to loving God, but loving your neighbor as well? As we get ready to sing, we have you stand, but don't feel like you have to. You may need to sit where you are and just say, Lord, my heart's hard. I look at this stuff over here and it just makes me, my heart's hard. I think about this. I look at me and look at myself in the mirror. Ugh. There's all sorts of things that are around us that just harden our hearts. Lord, show me who you are. Show me your son. Show me by your Holy Spirit all that you're taking me to, all that you would have me to be. And give me the freedom to live as a follower of Jesus, freedom to live as I'm called to live. Those of you that may not be followers of Jesus yet, I want you to see who he is and what he has done. And that this holy God went to the cross for you so that you may be rescued from your sin and your brokenness so that you might be saved, not just from hell, but from yourself. What a mighty God we serve. What an unbelievable God who puts us where we need to be to bring us where we need to be. Where do you need to go? Well, as the Holy Spirit leads you, don't leave here without responding to what he's called you to do. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this time you've given us, and we thank you, Lord, for the higher ground you're bringing us to. The rock, the anchor, our fortress, our strong and mighty tower, all of these metaphors show us that we can find our rest and our hope and our comfort and our support and our truth in you. And Father, as we sing this song, Higher Ground, may we lean into what the words are saying, but more importantly, may we lean into the one who has given these words to present this truth to us. We need to be marching on. And we are marching on. But I pray, Father, you would have us to march in the right direction, not in the wide path that everybody goes with no resistance, but you've called us to that narrow path. And we thank you, Father, that that narrow path is none other than Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. For no one comes to the Father. No one comes to you except through him. Father, I, I feel there's an urgency in our day 
Christians don't have a seat at the cool kids' table in America anymore. So we need to look to you to find our validation. We need to look to you and say, Lord, even though all hate me, I'll trust in you. Though all want to do me in, I'll follow you no matter what. May this be the morning that we make that commitment. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and commit our lives to Christ this morning.